We're going to look at 2 Thessalonians 1 tonight. We have, uh, even though our class is extremely small, we have a part of another class with us because Roy is sick tonight. And so you guys who are part of that class, when we get to 2 Thessalonians 1 in your class, just sit there and nod like you never heard it before, okay? I appreciate Stan uh, finishing up on First Thessalonians last week and uh, and the week before. Uh, fifth chapter is important, and I hope that you uh, benefited from studying it. There is not any real way to know for certain all of the events that took place between the writing of 1st Thessalonians and 2nd Thessalonians. If, uh, if we were to judge from the content of 2nd Thessalonians, I think we could perhaps conclude that news of some sort about the church in Thessalonica had come to Paul's attention. We, we, we wouldn't know exactly how that came about or from whom it came about, but I think you could make a case that 2 Thessalonians looks like that it is in part a response to what Paul had learned about the church. Because I think the news prompts the second letter. Um, a problem that had been dealt with in the first letter concerning what would happen to those saints who died before the Lord's second coming seems to have disappeared or at least been settled to a sufficient degree not to have to talk about it any further. And so you will not find that question addressed again in the second letter. I think you can tell from the second letter that it also appears that spiritual progress is still being made by the Thessalonians in their faith and in the love that they had for others, that that was continuing to grow. In fact, we'll see that a little bit tonight. But persecution is still going on. If you look at 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 4, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. And so it's evident that the outside stresses, the forces, the, the persecutions that were going on had not changed. Uh, so perhaps not a great deal of time has passed between these letters. We generally don't think so. Um, along with the problem of persecution, uh, Paul felt the need to warn these Thessalonians about false teachers and false teaching. Uh, you warn teachers, but you also have to warn about what they teach because that is significant. And Paul recognized the danger of these Christians being deceived. Now, if you surveyed the three chapters you read them together of 2 Thessalonians, I think you could establish four purposes for writing this letter, 
four purposes, four reasons. Number one, to commend them for their steadfastness. Uh, we talked about this in the first letter. Paul tries, if at all possible, in writing to churches or individuals to compliment them on what he sees good in them. And he could do this legitimately with the Thessalonians because they were still steadfast in their faith. But secondly, he wants to urge them to continue in that faith. In other words, don't give it up. Keep going. Thirdly, he writes, as we've already mentioned, to warn them about false teachers. Uh, this is a theme that occurs more than once in the New Testament. Remember, Peter in his first letter talks about false teachers and their uh, deceit. Uh, Paul mentions it in other letters of his. And then the, the final purpose is to command these Christians to discipline the disorderly, that, that they need to do something about those who are not in step as they should be. And we'll see that before we finish the letter. So let's look at the text now, First, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verse 1 says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. The letter begins exactly as the first letter began. That is, with those three names, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, uh, just as chapter 1, verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians began. And the greetings would come from all of them. But when you get to chapter 3, if you'll look there, please, and at verse 17, it becomes clear that Paul is really the writer of this letter. Notice, the salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. And so in this case, Paul is identifying himself as the author, although all three of the men send their greetings, and the instructions which are coming to the Thessalonians. Also, as in 1 Thessalonians, the letter is addressed to the entire church, to the church of the, the assembly of the Thessalonians. This is not a letter that is addressed only to a part of the church or a particular group within the church. It's for everybody to read and, uh, and to take benefit of. There, there is a little bit of a difference in the salutation in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Incidentally, that's a very uh, coincidental thing, maybe we would say, not intentional necessarily, but, but noting that the, the church is in God and in Christ. There, there is a significant relation. It's not God's church. It's not just Christ's church. It's, it's the church of God and Christ, the Father, God the Father and Christ. Incidentally, 1 Thessalonians says the Father here, it's our Father. Uh, just a, a minor difference. Um, anyway, um, the same greeting is used to call for God's peace and favor. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, that typical salutation that Paul often uses in calling for grace, which would be more the, uh, the Greek idea, uh, and then peace would be more 
the Jewish idea, I think, but, but to the combination. Now in verse 3, he says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. Several significant things. Just as he did in the first letter, he feels compelled. Notice, he feels bound. We are bound. We're, we're compelled. We're forced. Not forced in the sense of unwillingly forced, but we have to do this because of the truthfulness of it. We are forced to give thanks for your spiritual progress because it's so evident. And, and he assures them that this commendation is uh, deserving because he says it is fitting, as is fitting. It's appropriate. Paul is not, as we would call it, snowing them. He's not just buttering them up by trying to sound good. He said, this is what you deserve. You deserve to be commended for what is happening in your lives. And, and he gives two reasons for this commendation. He says, because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you abounds toward each other. Um, abundantly, exceedingly, abundantly. Uh, uh, th there, are, there are synonyms there that, that would show how impressive this is. That, that their faith is not just a progressing faith, it is a faith that's really taken off. It's really growing. And Paul wants that to be understood. And, and this obviously seems to be stronger than the compliment he paid them at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians because he has seen more progress now as time has gone on. Secondly, they have abounding love for each other. And he had noted this love in 1 Thessalonians 4. And if you look at verse 11, you remember that he says that you also aspire to lead a quiet life. Oh, no, that's not right. Four. Throw one. No, verse 10. I'm sorry. Verse 10. Uh, or you go back to 9. Concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, and indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. Remember, when we studied chapter 4 recently, we, we noted the fact that Paul is not satisfied. It doesn't mean that he's dissatisfied, but he's not satisfied with them just loving. Because he said, you can do this more and more. And, and as Christians, that's a lesson for you and me, that no matter how well we feel we do in loving others, we need to keep growing. There seems to be no limit to how much we can progress if we choose to progress. So he had urged them to increase if you, if you will notice this, your faith goes to see your, the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. This is not just love in general. This is not just saying, I love the church or I love the brethren. Paul sees the idea that each Christian is loving each Christian, that, that there is a uniform love that is being expressed among them. 
Verse 4, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Paul was glad to tell other congregations about the good he saw in the Thessalonians. Now, perhaps Paul had more than one reason for doing this. I think we can honestly believe that he wanted to share good news. What he had seen was heartwarming, uplifting. Why not share that? We like to share good news. And so Paul would do that. But I think we could also surmise that he could be doing this to encourage other groups to imitate the behavior of the Thessalonians. And the reason I can say that is because that's exactly what he did in reference to the matter of giving. Uh, look at 2 Corinthians 8, and you recall this, I'm sure. 2 Corinthians 8. <laughs> Writing to the church at Corinth, Paul would say this, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed where? On the churches of Macedonia that in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear the witness that according to their ability, yes, beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Paul says, hey, Corinthians, you want to see a model of giving? Here it is. Macedonia. Look what they did. They didn't just give. In their poverty they gave. And they implored us to take this money. So it, it wasn't just, hey, we got something left over we can give. These were people who were reaching deep in spite of their poverty and were giving generously. And Paul said, I'd like for you to notice them. And I think he could have done the same thing here as he was boasting, and this is good boasting, as he was boasting uh, to other churches about the goodness of the Thessalonians. You know, if we boast of ourselves, um, that's not good. Somebody else boasts about us, it's okay, especially if it's truthful. Two particular virtues are noticed in verse 4, and, and those are patience and faith. They were able to endure through their difficulties, and even in those difficulties, retain their trust in God. They had not given up, no matter what had happened to them. We, we, we have no way of knowing how severe, how frequent uh, that persecution was. We don't know where all it was coming from. But, but Paul said, you, you've held up, you, you've gone on, and you have not given up. Uh, anything as far as your faith is concerned. Uh, notice the words uh, in verse 4, tribulations that you endure, you endure. In the original language, this is present tense. And so what that means, it's continuing action, and it is the same as saying you are enduring, not you did endure, or this is something that happened to you a long time ago. You're, you're right in the middle of this, and you are enduring it. You're going through it patiently, and you're not giving up your faith. Verse 5, 
which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Having uh, introduced the idea of persecutions, Paul sets out what he calls the righteous judgment of God. And this continues all the way through verse 10 of this chapter. Um, to endure hardship, especially persecution, would, would seem to be a bad thing if viewed only from a human perspective. Uh, however, the fact that they had been able to endure it was proof that God was with them in that and was strengthening them. You see, the danger of people undergoing persecution is to think that God has abandoned them. If, if God were with us, we wouldn't be persecuted. Paul said, no, the judgment of God is that you will have to endure, but that doesn't mean that God has left anyone. He is still with them. And, and, and suffering, according to the New Testament, is really a refining process. Uh, that's very difficult. It's, it's okay to believe that intellectually. It's not that difficult to believe it intellectually, but it's very difficult to believe it in reality. Is that somehow that suffering is not, especially persecution, is not really a bad thing. It's really a helpful thing because it's a refining process. Look, uh, look if you will, at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. And not only that, Paul writes, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now look over at 1 Peter. 1 Peter, the first chapter. 1 Peter 1, beginning verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found, notice, may be found what? to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, not having seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Um, look, look back uh, further in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter 4, beginning verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. You see, when Christians suffer for the sake of the kingdom, 
they are blessed. And it is a refining process. Now, remember in 1 Peter 4, Paul Peter says, don't suffer under certain conditions, not as a murderer, a thief, or a meddler of other men's matter. Don't suffer that way. There's no glory in that. If you're guilty of things and you suffer, there's no glory in that. But if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed of that. But you rejoice in that. Christians suffering for the sake of the kingdom receive benefit. But, but Paul would go on because then he says in verse 6, Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. See, one of the things that a persecuted Christian realizes is that though he is persecuted by others, the time is coming when God will repay. That, that, they're not going to get away with that. Uh, th that's not going to happen. Retribution will come and God will repay. You're familiar with Romans 12, I, I know. Romans 12. And look at verse 19, Romans 12, 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We don't, we don't have to do the repaying. People treat us badly, we don't have to repay them because God is the one who will make things right. God's righteousness would cause him to afflict those who afflict his people. God's not indifferent to that. But he adds again another thing in verse 7. And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. God's going to grant rest and cessation from trouble. But it won't be on a human timetable. And if we expect it to be on a human table, we may be disappointed. It will happen when Christ is revealed at his second coming. And incidentally, the word in verse 7, when Christ is revealed, is the same word from which we get the word revelation. The revelation of Christ, the opening up, the unfolding of this. When God's plan is consummated in the coming of Christ, it will be the time when we will receive rest. Notice there, there are a couple of factors in verse 8. How is this happening? In verse 7 and 8, Jesus revealed from heaven. Remember Acts 1? The apostles stand there watching Jesus ascend into heaven. The angels assure them that the one you see going is coming again. And so he will be revealed. He will come from heaven with his mighty angels. We don't understand all of that, but we believe they will accompany him at his coming. And then in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, the, the coming from heaven is a promise, and, and the second coming is, is a theme that's often repeated in the New Testament. Um, it, it, it is supposed to be a matter of consolation. Um, it's not always that. 
because if someone is unprepared for Christ's return, it's, it's not comforting. But for God's people, especially you would think those who were suffering persecution and difficulty and whose lives were being made miserable by others, the, the hope of his coming would be reassuring. He's coming. Don't worry, he's coming. The other part of it, sadly, is a much newer problem, and that is the problem that some have developed of all of the false doctrines about the Lord's second coming. Men have just made a mess out of the second coming because they have added things that are not biblically revealed. They've changed things. Uh, and, and we could go through a whole litany of these. It starts with the fact that some are trying to teach and have tried to teach for centuries that Christ is not just coming to receive his people, but he's coming back to live on the earth. And Jesus never, never, ever, ever, ever said he was coming back to live on the earth. He did say that he was going to have us with him that's what he told the disciples in John 14, that where I am there, you may be with me also. Why would the Lord want to come back and live on the earth? He's already lived here. The earth is a place that is to be destroyed, to, to, to be made an end of. So, that, that's mistake one, coming back to live. And then, if that were not bad enough, the reason he's coming back is to set up his kingdom, which he obviously has already set up, but they would say, and many denominationalists teach, that the church is simply a stopgap measure for the kingdom that Christ didn't set up. In other words, much of denominational teaching resides in the idea that Jesus really failed in his mission. He wanted to set up a kingdom. Jews wouldn't receive it, and so he, he had to go back to heaven, set up the church instead of the kingdom. But when he comes back, then he'll set up his kingdom. No. No, that's wrong. Then add to this, well, he, when he comes to set up his kingdom, he, he's going to have his saints reign on the earth for a thousand years. No, no, no. That's a perversion from the book of Revelation. And then there's going to be all these things like a rapture. Some are going to be removed and others left. All of those things are human creations. And, 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 and the sad thing about it is that they simply muddy the waters that ought to be very clear. Yes, Christ is coming. He's not going to come back and set his foot on the earth. We're leaving the earth. And, and Paul makes that very clear. Plain and did in First Thessalonians, incidentally. So uh, Christ is coming again, and He will grant us rest. The punishment, though, is going to be severe, flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, it, punishment is going to be directed toward those who don't know God. And some have suggested that Paul has particularly in mind the pagan world, uh, the, the, the world of, of Gentile living. Uh, look back at chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians and verse 5, and this is where they get this. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles 
who do not know God. That's what Paul writes in chapter 4 of 1st Testament. Gentiles don't know God. And so God will render vengeance on those who don't know him. But also, he says, on those who do not obey him. There are people who have no excuse. I'm not excusing those who don't know God. But they really don't have any excuse who know God and don't obey him. And, and some think that Paul has the Jews in mind here. And, and, and the reason for that thinking is so that he could, as he did in the book of Romans, indict all the world. Who is God going to punish? Well, everybody who deserves to be punished, and that will be Gentiles and Jews who do not do God's will. Now, let me, let me mention this. Some people get upset when it's suggested that people who don't know God will be punished. And what they will typically say is that's not fair. That's not fair. For God to punish people who don't know and people who are ignorant of God. People who believe that have to think through that a little bit better, I believe. And, and here's the question that we would ask. Would it be fair to reward them for their ignorance? If, if God is unfair to punish those who don't know Him, would it be fair to reward those who don't know Him, who've never served Him, never obeyed Him? Would that be fair? And if that's fair, then you would have to say, what's the difference between rewarding the ignorant and rewarding those who have obeyed Him? If everybody gets a reward, both the ignorant and the obedient get a reward, then what's the purpose of obeying? It'd be better if you stayed ignorant. Uh, and, and does that make it better for them, or would that make it better for us to keep people in ignorance? If that philosophy is true, that, that people who don't know the gospel are going to be saved in their ignorance. Wouldn't it be better if we didn't preach the gospel so they wouldn't have a chance to know and disobey? Just leave them in ignorance and then that way we'd be certain they'd be saved. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The, the Bible never gives a reward for ignorance. And yet some people would do that. Well, you see what... The problem with that is, as is true in many biblical arguments, that's an emotional argument, and truth is not based on emotion. You don't decide truth because what emotionally seems right to you. Well, that's not fair. We don't like that. That doesn't seem to make sense. That's all emotion. And emotion is not necessarily truth. Punishment in verse 9. These both groups shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Punishment is described as destruction. It, it is a mistake to think that this word carries the idea of the cessation of existence. And, and talking about false doctrines, there's another prevalent one. And that is, there are religious groups today that teach that the worst thing that's going to happen to man is that he's just going to disappear. He's going to be destroyed, made to cease. The word that is used here in Greek really could be translated ruin. Punishment will be man's ruin. 
But, but even if we didn't know that, if we just understood, these shall be punished with what? Everlasting destruction. Everlasting. Uh, now, if everlasting doesn't mean everlasting, then neither does everlasting life mean everlasting. If you say everlasting punishment is just being destroyed and that's the end of you, then how can you say that everlasting reward is eternal life with God? It'd just be temporary too. Same word. There are, there are people started in the denominational world who have consistently taught that man simply goes out of existence. Jehovah's Witnesses are an example of this. They don't believe in hell. They don't believe in eternal punishment. That idea has crept over into the church. And we've had more than one man in the church who has promoted the idea that there is no such thing as everlasting punishment. I don't believe they can sustain their argument. Because their argument also destroys the idea of everlasting reward. Part of punishment will involve being banished or separated from the presence of God. Look at uh, Matthew 25. And in an incident of this, is, that's one of the passages that sometimes is not really looked at correctly. Matthew 25. Then he will also, this is talking about the judgment, of course. He, also, he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Incidentally, you see, if everlasting punishment is only just going out of existence, that means the devil goes out of existence too. That the, that the worst thing that happens to the devil is that he ceases to exist. I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. In verse 10, when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. I believe Paul is talking more specifically now in part of this to the Thessalonians for their own assurance and comfort. They had believed what Paul had taught. And there was going to be a reward for that because when Christ comes in that day, he would be glorified in his saints and he would be admired among those true believers. Uh, th things are going to be set in motion at his second coming. And the positive side is here expressed to, to glorify him and to admire him, to, to be thrilled with all. I, I don't think we can find human words to adequately describe the kind of wonder and awe we will see or have in our lives when we see Jesus. I don't believe we can adequately express that. It will be truly awesome. We use that word very carelessly. But it will be awesome in the truest sense. Then in verses 11 and 12 as he finishes the chapter, he says, Therefore we also pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling 
and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't take a lot to prompt Paul to want to pray for his fellow Christians. And this is one of those things that causes him to want to pray. Because he says, we pray always for you. That God would count you worthy. That God would look upon you with favor so that you would fulfill what he wants you to fulfill. That you would accomplish his purpose. That you would complete your work of faith. And and that also perhaps in, in, a, in a secondary way gives us the idea that Paul is reminding us that we have to keep on going. Uh, that, that we don't just serve for a while and quit. We keep on progressing until his work is absolutely completed. And the purpose was not just for them to experience comfort and freedom from trouble. It was that Jesus might be glorified in them. And, and, and so if you, if you put all of this together as you're thinking about this, and the fact that Paul has mentioned more than one time the idea of, being, of glorifying God and God being glorified in us, whatever is happening in their lives, no matter the difficulties that they're enduring, no reason to, to back off from our faith, but to keep on living so that God will be glorified by us faithfully serving him through all of those difficulties. Okay, let me stop. for We, we have just a little bit of time. I want to turn over the backside of the lesson sheet for a minute, but if you, if you have an observation or thought or something you want to uh, throw in here, this would be a good place to do it. Anybody? Let's think about a couple of these things. Among the questions, how did Paul view the love and faith of the Thessalonians? Well, obviously, he viewed it as growing and abundant and good. And, and, and those are the kinds of reports that we really like to hear. I'm going to be careful how I say this. You know, a lot of times today... If you talk to somebody in another congregation, how, how are you all doing? What do you hear? <laughs> what do you hear? Hey, how's the church there doing? Oh, well, we're holding our own. Uh, we're, we can't keep our head above the water, but we're doing okay, I guess. I, I'm sorry, I don't think I hear people very enthusiastic often. Do you? Do you hear them enthusiastic? They say, man, we're really growing in faith and our love for each other is really abundant and we, we're really moving in some good direction. I don't think we hear that enough. And, and I don't know if it's because we just don't say it or that it can't be said. But I'm afraid it's not common. What is the purpose of Paul boasting to other churches about the Thessalonians? Not just to build them up, not just to make them seem uh, better than anybody else, but to encourage 
Look what's happening in Thessalonica. And, and that's why I'm saying in this other matter, I'm saying, wouldn't it be nice to hear of a church that was really growing in faith and love? And wouldn't that encourage us? Oh, I'm so glad to hear that the congregation is doing well. Verse, question three, what two virtues are mentioned in chapter one, verse four, and how do these relate to suffering? What are those? Patience and faith. How do they relate to suffering? Well, you got to continue to have faith and patience in suffering. Don't, don't give up on God. Don't, don't make it a matter that I'm suffering. God must not love me. I give up my faith, but also then to endure it. According to 1 verse 8, question 4, who be punished by God? Those who don't know him, those who don't obey him. Common belief of society? No, they don't think that at all. And who's to administer final justice? God. Not you and me. Not you and me. Not, we're not going to be able to correct things in this life. Very quickly, things to consider. Paul helps us see that we can keep growing spiritually. And it's and and we have to be careful of getting satisfied with where we are. Oh, I've done this for a long time. I'm okay. Every Christian ought to say, my desire is to keep on growing. I never want to stop growing. Number two, wouldn't it be wonderful if someone could boast of our patience and faith? 